Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC, providing primary and advanced specialty care throughout all of central Pennsylvania and beyond. A list of providers in the area can be found at upmc.com slash findadoc. Outside of Carlisle in South Central Pennsylvania, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School is best known for its national power football teams in the early part of the 20th century and Jim Thorpe, the world-renowned athlete. But a new book documents how the school used football for more than just school, school spirit or to build its athletic program. It's called The Imperial Gridiron, Manhood, Civilization, and Football at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School by Matthew Bentley and Shippensburg University history professor John Bloom. John Bloom is with us on The Spark today. Dr. Bloom, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott, and thank you very much for having me. So why did you want to write this book? Well, um, you kind of introduced the story of the book. So there's a story that the book tells, and there's a story of the book. And the story of the book is that Matthew Bentley had written this as a dissertation at the University of East Anglia. And um, I ended up through a long story that I won't go into. I ended up being on his dissertation committee. Um, and sadly, Matthew, when he had gotten the contract with the University of Nebraska Press to write this book, um, passed away. And so they were looking for somebody to finish the book for him. And they asked if his father and, and dissertation director, Jackie Fersiegel, asked if I would um, be willing to do that. And I said, if I could get a sabbatical, um, I'll do it. And I got a sabbatical. So I finished the book for Matthew. And I so I did it because Matthew was a great scholar and really promising and um, uh, mainly I wanted him to have this legacy to, um, finish up with, but I also had written on Indian boarding schools myself and sports, um, with a previous book about 20 years ago called to show what an Indian can do. And that was about Indian boarding school sports more generally at all, you know, there's a system of, uh, 25 Indian boarding schools around the country. And, um, I delved into a lot of those, including Carlisle. And so this is the first one that, I have worked on that only dealt, you know, just exclusively with Carlisle and exclusively about football. Well, there are a lot of books or stories about the Carlisle Indian Industrial School's exploits on the field, but this is different. In what way? Yes. Well, it focuses, I think one of the ways I'd like to explain is that it focuses on football um, in a way as an idea. Um, and we don't really think of football and ideas going well together. Uh, <laughs> but uh, football really has at the center of it um, really important ideas that have shaped a lot of um, a lot of things that we assume um, have become just a routine part of modern life. Um, and in particular, in terms of ideas, I would say that what we go into in our book is how football weaves together manhood, race, and violence. Um, and in the origins of football, um, it's an interesting story because football begins as a game played by elite college students, mostly in the East. And it, uh, it emerges at a time when ideas about manhood were changing in the United States, especially among the elite. So to be a, a, an ideal man in the early part of the 19th century in the Victorian era was to be um, pious, uh, sober, and essentially a gentleman. And that was a concept that, as Matthew points out, um, 
it would, would be referred to as manliness. And so you would want to, you know, men in that era would have wanted to suppress their um, physical nature. And that was what people referred to as masculinity, kind of this elemental side of, of um, male identity, you know, aggression, violence, sexuality, all of those sorts of things. And when we get to the you know, second half of the 19th century, that starts to change, especially among elite men that are in college. A lot of reasons for this, but you know, one thing that's happening at that time, it's post-Civil War, so there's been a war. Um, it's also a time when the United States is becoming a nation that is um, kind of aggressively expanding both into the West and by the end of the 19th century to colonies overseas and populations that are not white. And there's a lot of anxiety among white men about, you know, can we be tough enough to take on these, you know, uh, darker races? And that is something, a good example of um, someone mocking this would be if you've ever read The Great Gatsby, the character Tom Buchanan, who had played football for Yale. And he talks about that. He says you know, there's this book um, uh, that he mentions, which is based on a real book uh, that had been uh, published at the time called, uh, I forget what it's called in the novel, uh, but it's about uh, the fact that uh, white men need to get tougher. And so this is, you know, sort of uh, behind the origins of football. And a lot of, you know, there's a lot of sort of uh, um, uh, very overt literature about that, where um, people who promoted the game all the way to its essential founder, Walter Camp, would write about the need for uh, white men to um, to get tougher and more violent. Now you so, do to, you yeah. do tie in <clears throat> the Carlisle Indian School. Let's take a step back for for just a moment mm -hmm. before we tie in football to this. Richard Henry Pratt was the founder and superintendent of the Carlisle Indian School. He said, "Kill the Indian, save the man." What did he mean by that? And what was Carlisle's mission? He meant by that essentially that. Um, Carlisle needed to erase all traces of indigenous uh, identity, um, all traces of language, uh, religious belief, um, social practice, uh, and in the case that's most relevant to football, gender, um, and reformulate all those all of those ideas, essentially turning them into Anglo-Protestant white men and women. Um, and uh, he was, you know, in his time, he believed he was a progressive because he believed this could be done. Um, he didn't have uh, uh, strong ideas about, um, uh, you know, the incapability of some people uh, versus uh, other people racially. He actually, um, uh, well, he felt that way somewhat about African-Americans, but he was, um, you know, even toward African-Americans, he, he was a believer that there was this kind of a rank of different civilizations and that anybody can move up that rank. And so Carlisle's mission was to move up that rank. In terms of um, Indian and in, indigenous men, he believed that indigenous men were too masculine and not manly enough. Now that might seem kind of paradoxical because if that's the case, why would he want to promote football? If football is this game that was promoting masculinity but he saw it differently. He saw it as this opportunity, a kind of public relations opp opportunity, really, so that um, he could show, playing this violent, masculine game, if he could show that his students could behave like gentlemen, uh, that that would be, um, you know, this great PR move. And it was because football was becoming, by the time he makes this decision in the 1890s, something that 
the popular media is covering. It's in newspapers, it's in popular magazines and all those sorts of things. So um, he understands the pub pu public relation opportunity that this has, especially convincing people who are in, you know, political positions of power, people with money who might be able to give the Carlisle Indian Schools some um, donations, that this would be something to prove that his mission was something that could be successful. And as you write in the book, uh, at first, the football wasn't about winning on the field. It was about sportsmanship. And actually, some newspaper accounts at the time would comment on the Carlisle football team and how gentlemanly they were. Talk about that. That's not something you think about with especially early 20th century football. Yeah, they, they commented as much about that as they did uh, about winning. It was sort of, uh, you know, in the vein of, you know, oh, my gosh, I can't believe these wild Indians have taken the field and are behaving like gentlemen. Um, and, uh, you know, the most um, uh, famous example of that that Richard Pratt writes about himself was when um, the Carlisle Indian School played Yale in uh, 1896. And there was a bad call on the field, which would have, if um, it had been called correctly, would have given Carlisle a tie in the game against Yale. Um, which is kind of tragic because that's a that ended up being the the best chance Carlisle ever had in the history of the school football team of ever coming close to beating Yale. So uh, they didn't know that at the time, but um, it was called back. And he claims that he, you know, said to the team, um, they they had threatened to walk off the field. They were so upset, and he said, "Don't walk off. The media will be on your side if you go back out and play this game." And so they did go back out and the media was, you know, you look at the New York Times articles and the other articles, they're very sympathetic with uh, the, the Carlisle players and talk about what great sportsmanship they had. Um, but of course, you know, that will only take you so far. You know, people are only going to be interested in you after a while if you start to win games. And, you know, in fact, Pratt himself, when he, you know, he reports in his book, Battlefield and Classroom, that um, he had two conditions. Number one was that you know you never hit back; you always behave like a gentleman. But number two, you beat the best teams in the country within the span of five years, um, which Carlisle did not do. They didn't meet that second criteria uh, until after five years. But um, so there was a big turnaround at the Carlisle Indian School uh, when you know Rich, Richard Pratt said that uh, yeah we'd, we 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 want to win, beat some of the bigger schools or the best. Uh, schools playing football within five years didn't happen within five years but eventually it did happen and winning became the kind of the uh, priority over that gentlemanly sportsmanship like play i mean just talk about how good they were well i mean if you want to know how good they were um they essentially were pretty close to being the national champions in 1911 and 1912 those were their best years um, and uh, 1912, uh, that was the year that Jim Thorpe uh, probably was at his peak. And um, they went, uh, I will have to look at the record. I know they won all of their games except for the last game against Penn, and they tied one game. And Penn um, at that time was one of the big four schools. Penn was, was the big four schools were um, Yale, Princeton, Harvard, and Penn. Um, so, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine that today, but those were the schools that you you had to beat if you really wanted to be among the elite. And uh, you, you can include Army in that, too. And in 1912, they beat Army in a legendary game where um, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower was on 
and George Patton were on the Army side, and uh, Jim Thorpe was on the Carlisle side, and uh, they really convincingly beat Army. So uh, kind of an inter interesting matchup there because Army really representing more than any other team that masculine ideal that um, that uh, people white white men playing football really would have been um, hoping uh, to uphold. I want to kind of take a step back. It does relate, obviously, to uh, the how how you write in the book, but manhood and civilization are words that are used often in your book. Uh, in fact, it's right there in the title. Uh, what's the significance of those two words, and how does football play into it? Well, uh, it, kind of like I said earlier with, with um, looking at uh, – the way early on, the way that Pratt understood football as a way of uh, showing that um, indigenous uh, men could achieve the manly ideal within the most trying of circumstances. So, you know, they're out there on this football field playing a violent game, a game where uh, they're going to be provoked to react in um, a manner that he would have identified as savage and that they're going to do this in a in a civilized kind of way. Um, that is important because, you know, he is making the argument that we can expand as a country westward, we can um, obtain indigenous lands, we can do all these sorts of things without firing a bullet if we um, end up, uh, you know, sort of converting indigenous people over to civilization. Um, and the, the reason why it's also important is this assumption that, you know, uh, European society and European American society are uh, the definition of what civilization is, which is actually both historically, it isn't just, you know, um, uh, uh, wrongheaded in terms of its, its obvious prejudice, but it's also um, an ethnocentrism, but it's also inaccurate, you know, that the first civilizations do not appear in Europe. So um, it's, it's a very, very um, uh, core idea to the notion of manhood, that that taming indigenous men in this way of you know in introducing them and getting them to follow um, European American standards, it goes hand in hand with the idea of uh, advancing civilization. So it's, it's sort of part of part of the same package. So after Richard Henry Pratt, there was another superintendent, actually a few of them, but uh, and yeah. a new coach, Glenn Pop Warner. I have to say that these two guys, and I'm talking about the superintendent Friedman and uh, Pop Warner, I mean, these two guys, when you talk about civilization, the point is made in the book that uh, they probably uh, don't fit under uh, the prototype of what's civilized. I mean, these are, are two guys that are not very likable, to tell you the truth. <laughs> they're, they're not. <laughs> and, um, and actually, the, the interesting thing is Pratt was the one who originally hired Warner. So he hired him in 1899. So, you know, you could tell maybe he was getting a little impatient for those winds to start coming in. Um, so he hires him in 1899. He's in 1904, and it's the same year that um, uh, that Pratt leaves at Carlisle. Pratt had called for the abolition of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, his boss, and so he ends up um, being forced to leave. Um, and after that, you have first a superintendent named William Mercer, who's a military man, kind of like Pratt, and then you have Friedman, and Friedman is really more of a bureaucrat. And... Um, Really, without Pratt there, you know, the, the other superintendents were following the 
the orientation of the Roosevelt administration, which didn't have a lot of faith in indigenous people becoming um, civil, you know, so-called civilized, then they started to withdraw resources from Carlisle and from the Ian Bourne school system. Carlisle started to become kind of rudderless and the school football team starts to win. So the football team almost takes over, you know, um, in terms of the public image of the school. Um, and, you know, kind of we've seen that, you know, in our own time, right? You know, in, in a lot of institutions of higher education, we had our own scandal here in Pennsylvania with Penn State a few years ago. Um, and uh, what happened with Friedman and Warner is is kind of similar. Carlisle um, had a booster organization, which is how they got their, uh, where, where their funds went when they would play another team. So when they would play a team like Harvard, uh, there was always a big gate receipt that would come in and they came to the Carlisle booster fund. Um, Pop, uh, Pop Warner had entire sole control over the Carlisle booster fund. He paid himself out of the Carlisle booster fund. He also bribed players. He also drank openly. He also gambled on games. Um, so he was not, as you put it, a paragon of civilization. And in fact, if you think of him coming out of Cornell, which is his school, as a football player, he really embraced the kind of um, masculinity, some might say toxic masculinity that uh, football represented at the time. Friedman was really a, a very weak administrator. So if you think about Pratt being this larger than life um, founder of the school and superintendent, Friedman was in a lot of ways quite the opposite. And so was able to be pushed around quite a bit by um, Pop Warner. And then in addition to that, he would he engaged in his own chicanery too. you know, have, he would, um, you know, double uh, uh, charge the government for train trips to football games and do all sorts of things like that. So um, and the students really did not respect Friedman very much, which is one of the um, major things that helped to bring Carlisle down. They end up petitioning um, Congress and petitioning the Bureau of Indian Affairs to have uh, Friedman and more eventually Warner too removed from their positions. Well, let's um, talk about just, that. Let's oh, talk about ahead. that a little bit because you have a chapter in the book called Civilization on Trial. What happened? Um, in that case, the, um, the a committee from Congress came up to Carlisle following this petition and they um, investigated the Carlisle Indian School with a number of different witnesses. Ahead of them, there was a, a superintendent from the Bureau of Indian Affairs who took depositions, and it, they're incredibly revealing. And it, what's really interesting about them is that the whole um, investigation was prompted by students. And the students essentially used Carlisle's you know, um, idea of civil, a civilizing institution against it. They said, you know, if this is a st institution that is supposed to be um, uh, civilizing us, they act in a very uncivilized kind of manner. Um, so they sort of step upon the mantle of civilization as a way of uh, rebelling against this institution that was created to civilize them. And also, and we really haven't talked about this, but women's role uh, at uh, Carlisle when football became such a huge part of its identity. In the book, you say that uh, the women at the Carlisle Indian School kind of realized that uh, they were down on the list of, of priorities. Yeah, so a lot of the resources went to the football team. You know, the, um, it's interesting when, uh, when the Carlisle, um, uh, you know, when Warner first came to Carlisle, he said that the players were malnourished. They were scrawny and they couldn't compete against other teams because of that. 
And um, so they, you know, had a training table. He brought in food. He brought in special quarters for them. And women never really got those sorts of resources when they were at Carlisle. So this civilization on trial, the Congress uh, congressman coming to Carlisle, uh, that led to the demise of the school and yeah. the demise of football. And in the two minutes or so we have left, how did that happen? Well, um, uh, a, a number of different things. And one of the things that's interesting is, uh, you know, you mentioned women and women were really mistreated very often at the school. Um, if a woman uh, became pregnant at the school, for example, they were simply expelled. Um, and, uh, and this happened quite a bit because by the time you get to the end of the school, a lot of the students were relatively old. You know, you look at the early, if you've ever seen these early pictures of Carlisle, you see these children that are there. And that is true. They're very young children were there. But the time they get to the end, there were people there that really shouldn't have been there because they were too old. They would have been 24, 25, 26 years old. And they have the same sorts of regulations on their lives made as a high school kid. So um, uh, the scandals, the financial scandals, the, uh, you know, sex scandals, drinking on campus, all these things ended up um, bringing Carlisle down, and eventually they needed the space for a hospital during World War One, and uh, turned the space over to essentially what it would become uh, another army post. Well, I will say that uh, the book tells a different story than what uh, we've heard and read throughout the years, uh, most often about the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. Really didn't even get a chance to talk on the industrial park, or part, I should say, of, of what how they were uh, trained or educated. But the book is The Imperial Gridiron, Manhood, Civilization, and Football at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School by Matthew Bentley, the late Matthew Bentley, and Shippensburg University history professor John Bloom. John Bloom, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Scott.